Welcome to this podcast episode of Narcissists in Divorce, The Narcissist Trap. I'm Dr. Supriya McKenna. I'm a former family doctor, but my life's true work is working with people who have fallen prey to narcissistic relationships of any kind. But I'm particularly busy in the area of divorce. Over the last few years, I've been very proud to become an Amazon best-selling author on the subject of narcissism, and my brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out right now on Amazon. That's the first book in the Narcissists in Divorce series, and the follow-on to that will be out in the spring, and that's called Narcissists in Divorce, From Leaving to Liberty. And please do note that although I use the word divorce, these books are equally applicable to anyone leaving a serious intimate relationship with a narcissist, whether they are married or not. I also have a book out called The Narcissist Trap, The Mind-Bending Pull of the Great Pretenders. And that book might be useful in helping the people around you who are supporting you to understand more about what happened to you and about narcissism generally. I'm also the co-author with British divorce lawyer Karen Walker of Narcissism and Family Law, a practitioner's guide. And between us, Karen and I have trained thousands of family law professionals in narcissistic personality disorder, including judges, lawyers, mediators and social workers. For further narcissism resources from me, please do visit thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com. And that web address has the doctor fully spelt out. Karen and I are delighted to be joined today by Nicholas Anderson, who's a highly experienced barrister practicing at One King's Bench Walk in London. Nick deals with both the financial side of divorce cases and children's proceedings. He's been involved in cases in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, and he regularly appears in the High Court. He's also a qualified mediator, and he sits as a recorder in family law cases. Nick has a particular specialism in child relocation cases and frequently deals with cases involving allegations of abuse and parental alienation. So thank you so much for joining us today, Nick. No, thank you for inviting me. And Nick, um, it's really nice to be able to talk to you about this topic. So Nick, I was going to ask, um, do, do you receive any particular training at the bar to deal with personality traits? Or is it very much like um, on my side of the profession that one goes to as many courses as sound inter- interesting and are available to sort of widen one's understanding while doing the work on the ground? No, it's exactly as you describe it, Karen. At the bar, we we pick and choose the courses that you think are interesting or that uh, fit in with your professional diary or that fit in with your professional practice. But there's there's no formal uh, or or even informal training provided. And and I think the same is true of the judiciary as well. I know the judicial college puts on excellent refresher courses for full-time and part-time judges, um, but there's very little uh, training either either for the, for the bar or for the judiciary about these issues of personality disorder. And again, it tends to be only the professionals, whether barristers, solicitors, judges, who are interested in it themselves, who make the effort to find out. Yeah, I think that's right. And do you think that a lack of understanding can have an adverse effect on the outcome of cases? Oh, very much so. Um, I, I think probably less so from, from barristers because barristers tend to just present their case. And 
it, it matters less whether I like my client, whether I believe in my client. Um, I, I'll do my best to put forward their instructions, having given advice. But I, I really think it matters from the point of view of the judiciary because they, the judge uh, or, or, or the bench of magistrates has such a tiny window of opportunity to, to see and to understand what's going on with this family if they are swayed or if they see somebody present in a particular way and think, well, you know, they, they seem all right to me, then that can be so undermining. And, and the, the presentation of the narcissist is often of somebody who is terribly compelling and, and can be somebody who's very confident and, and very believable. Yeah. Or, or particularly true, I think, of the covert narcissist who's very often married to somebody who is quite special or has all the potential grandiose attributes that one might be not criticized for thinking that those are the attributes that would appear in someone with narcissistic personality disorder whereas really it's the covert narcissist who's aligned themselves to this quite sort of larger than life a special in their eyes person um, so that they're getting their supply through that but actually present as very meek and mild and quiet and very easily create the role of victim and fall into that really dangerous dynamic that I think features more and more yeah Definitely. I mean, it's much bigger, I think. Covert or closet narcissism is much bigger than people realise. That's the the type of narcissist that people just do not spot because they are meek and mild and, you know, self-effacing and quite nice and quite gentle to the outside world. And they also play the victim a great deal. And as you say, they associate with people who they consider to be special in order to bask in in their reflected specialness. So it's quite easy to see how you might think that the, the person that kind of outwardly looks quite special but isn't a narcissist might be thought of as being the narcissistic party so it's really really difficult and they do play the victim a great deal but yes without that grandiosity so it's just not easy to spot at all and I can see that people with no training in it would find it incredibly difficult to know what was going on. Yes and and when you come to court the only way that a judge can possibly make a call on these things is either because they have some training or some experience in these issues or if there's a report if there's some evidence that you can put before a court. And it's so difficult to persuade a judge at an interim stage in private law proceedings that uh, a report or that the involvement of an expert is necessary. So an expert to diagnose the personality disorder. And the problem with that, of course, is that you're going to be hard pressed to find an expert that can diagnose. There aren't very many people that are trained in it in the first place. It really is a a huge conundrum as to how you deal with it. Well, that's the $64,000 question, isn't it? That's that's the question we all struggle with. How do you find the right expert, even if you can persuade a judge that the issues in this case are out of the ordinary and do require the involvement of an expert? How do you find the expert? And then how do you persuade the parties to engage with and go along with the expert? And so I suppose the best you can do as a barrister, the best you can do if you're, for example, cross-examining somebody who's narcissistic is try to sort of show the behaviours. Is that what you would do to try to bring them to light during the cross-examination or, or is that not how it works? Yes, I suppose so. But then one of the problems that the step before that is, for me, would be knowing that the person I'm cross-examining is a narcissist because I might suspect it myself. But if nobody has brought up those issues there's a limit to how far I can take my own theory of any case absolutely 
we had um, the privilege of presenting at the same event. And you mentioned at that that you felt that three trends or buzzwords had emerged during lockdown um, for family law, those being domestic violence, parental alienation and also narcissism. And I just wondered why you included narcissism in that list. Yes, well, domestic violence or domestic abuse more widely, I think, is is one of the most on trend topics in family law. It's certainly an issue which is preoccupying the judiciary. And and within that, within the issues of domestic abuse, I, I think alienation and narcissism are two of the most commonly encountered phrases or the two of the most commonly encountered allegations which are made. Narcissism, it seems to me, is something which is being brought up more and more frequently. And and why do you think that is? Um, Do you think it's just something that we're becoming gradually more aware of, um, that perhaps with um, some recent events, um, politically and otherwise, that it's it's a a term that's come more to the fore? Or, Or do you think there are any other reasons for that? The ability of parties to uh, type in to Google the symptoms from which they believe their other half to be suffering and and come up with a a punchy one line or one word diagnosis has has made narcissism a a more frequently encountered phrase. But also things like, um, let's not pull any punches, President Trump, who diagnosed... Yeah. By lots of people as a narcissist and and lots, uh, I think, lots of people Mm. became more aware of narcissism as a a properly diagnosable syndrome rather than just, oh, he's a narcissist, he's forever talking about himself. Do you think, Nick, that there's a prevalence towards attaching this label without having a proper understanding necessarily of what it relates to. As you rightly say, we can all Google what we like now and come up with a catchphrase that fits what we think our self-diagnosis might be. Um, Do you think that there is a trend towards that or do you think there is a growing understanding of what narcissism actually is? I think there, there really is a mixture of the two. I think amongst the profession, there is a growing but but slowly growing understanding that narcissistic personality disorder it is a genuine phenomenon and not just something which is bandied around as, as a term from clients I mean, it's a shame, isn't it, that you can't go and see your solicitor or if you mention it to your barrister and you say, I think my partner is narcissistic. I think it's a shame that that might sort of be discounted because some of those people are actually right. And there needs to be a way of determining whether they are right, I think, for lawyers, because it can't just be discounted by those lawyers who think, well, it's, you know, because it's come from the parties or one of the parties that they're probably just using it as a buzzword. I mean, that's that's a real worry that I have and um, that it's being discounted because of that. I, I absolutely agree. And in, in a way, it's why I linked them, to, to go back to Karen's question, uh, I linked the issues of narcissism with alienation and domestic abuse because I, I think particularly alienation and narcissism are phrases that clients often use to us. Um, I'm being alienated uh, and and lawyers, I think, tend to just discount that and think, well, that just means you're not getting the the arrangements which you would like to be be in place. And I, my fear is that it's the same knee jerk response from lots of lawyers to uh, a, a client suggesting that their partner 
or their former partner suffers from a form of narcissism. They, they just think, well, you're, you're just saying that because you've now separated. Now let's, let's move on and look at it from a legal point of view. Mm-hmm. But it, in fact, it is relevant, though, from a legal point of view. Yeah, I mean, the, the issues that, that you've raised previously, Supriya, the, the categories of narcissist opened my eyes when I listened to your presentation and, and to previous episodes of the podcast, because I, I think many lawyers, probably many lay people, would assume that a narcissist is the Donald Trump type, the alpha male, the, the, the big man in the room. And if you become a little more educated and a little more aware that there is more to narcissistic personality disorder than just uh, that that very domineering man, then then I think you're less likely to discount parties suggesting that their other half or their ex is uh, displaying these kind of symptoms. And why is it relevant? I mean, I see that it can make a big difference from how um, a solicitor would run the case in terms of communication, etc. So they, they keep the costs proportionate and also they direct their clients to a, a, a perhaps a better system than the court system if they can, like perhaps hybrid mediation, and which we know does work with narcissists, um, rather than directing them um, straight to the court process, um, which of course can kind of feed into the abuse. Narcissists very commonly use the legal system as a tool of abuse. But from, from the point of view of, of a barrister, knowing that someone has an narcissistic personality disorder how can that practically translate how can that change how the case kind of progresses if it has reached court well I think it has two really important impacts it, it, speaking personally it would affect the way I dealt with my own client if my client was the narcissist uh, and secondly I think it impacts on the way the judge sees the case and sees evidence developing because if, if you are dealing with a, a classic narcissist, it, it may be easier to spot, but some of the other subsets of narcissism, I think are much more difficult for a judge to see and to understand. Um, and if you are aware that a, a litigant is, is a narcissist, then I think it probably explains their behavior. And it makes you realize that when parties say, well, this is all about the children, I'm only doing this because I, I want what's best for my children, that they may say that and they may genuinely mean it, but it isn't true. Yeah. What really worries me is that you, you can go to court and you, you take your oath at a final trial and, you know, you promise that you're going to tell the truth. And it worries me that judges might just think, oh, well, you know, they've taken an oath. So everything they say must therefore be true. I mean, that, surely that, that's probably a very simplistic way of looking at it. But it's quite frightening that some judges might be doing that. Well, I agree. And I think it, it goes a step beyond that. I think most judges, probably most people, assume that parents want the best for their children. So although they may disagree, ultimately most parents want their children to uh, be, be decent people and to succeed and, and to have happy outcomes for themselves. When you're dealing with a narcissist, although that may be what the, the parent says, it, it, it isn't true because psychologically they are incapable of putting the child or the child's needs before their own needs. It is so nice to hear you say that. I mean, it's a dreadful reality, but it's so nice to hear a barrister say that. We're trying so hard to raise awareness of this within the kind of legal professions. And um, and so, you know, it's so nice to hear that somebody does understand this. Because, of course, that's so relevant, isn't it, when sorting out child arrangements? It's vitally relevant, really, Sophia, isn't it? Because um, if, if there is no understanding that actually a parent may not have the... Um, 
the approach that one would always attribute to any parent, which is um, that they'll put the children first. I think in even the most acrimonious of cases, I can think of numerous times when in any situation, be it mediation or court or otherwise, there's that focus of everybody must want the best for the children, whatever else happens. And it really isn't the case at, at all where somebody's suffering from NPD because they've just got no ability to even understand what the needs of the children are. And that's not a deliberate, manipulative approach to the case. It's just a fact. And I think that, as Supriya said, Nick, I think it's great to hear um, somebody in your situation saying that, because I think until you've got that understanding that whether it's your client or the other side, they are just not going to be doing what you expect them to do. And worse still, they will present in a terribly charming way. Um, and so they will be very plausible. And actually, that's putting the children potentially in quite a toxic situation um, and something to be very, very aware of, I think. And more worrying than that, they actually use the children as weapons of abuse against the other parent through the legal process. And that's doubly bad, isn't it, really? Oh, yes, absolutely. I tend to think of children cases involving parents rather than those involving the state as falling into two very broad categories. There are the chronic cases that go on for years and the parents can fall out over everything. And there are the acute cases where something has happened which either causes a fracture in the relationship or they're litigating over one particular issue, such as which school a child should attend. And in those chronic cases, the risk of the litigation itself becoming abusive is greater and greater. And, and that, that impacts not only on, in my view, not only on the, the litigants, but also on the children, who, let's not forget, are often interviewed, they are, they are dragged into litigation, and they are being brought up by parents who are ground down by litigation. So the very fact of the litigation can be problematic for the children, even if the outcomes of the litigation are relatively benign. And if you have a parent who wants to hold their spouse in some quite unattractive way within a legal process to maintain narcissistic supply so that there's ongoing contact to maintain drama, you can find that children have spent their entire childhood in some form of litigation. They've been brought up by parents who've been in court for the whole of their childhood. Yes, and and even if the parent who is not a narcissist does their very best to shield the child from litigation, to deal with emails when the children are in bed, to keep them out of the process as far as possible. That parent is impacted by the litigation. And of course, that impacts on their ability to parent the child. That's exactly right. And keeping all of that sort of under wraps, there's a school of thought that perhaps doing that isn't the right thing either, because you're enabling the narcissistic parent. Um, so you're pretending that everything is absolutely fine. Um, and on the one hand, you know, whilst you can't badmouth the narcissistic parent, enabling them, that's that's a whole other thing, isn't it? This is the difficulty, isn't it? And uh, Karen and I are only lawyers. We, we, we just we do our best. But, but ultimately, we defer to people like you, Supriya, to, to try and help us manage real world outcomes. And I personally, I don't know whether the right thing is just to, to try and keep litigation going, but on a low key level or to bring litigation 
to an end, but with the sort of drama of a trial at the end of it, which inevitably brings winners and losers. I, I, I don't know what's the right outcome for either the children or, or the parties. Well, given that litigation is likely to be repeated, as you've said, in those chronic cases, if a narcissist wants to create drama and conflict repeatedly, if they need that contact with their former spouse, if they need to continue to try to win, there'll always be issues that they can argue about um, when it comes to the children. And that's, that's the problem. It can just kind of go on and on and on. My brand new book, Narcissists in Divorce, From Love Locked to Leaving, is out now. For more information and online courses about narcissism, please do check out my websites, thelifedoctor.org or drsapria.com.